Hi, I'm Ron Glass, and you're listening to episode 18. Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Read by the author. For more information about this novel, please visit www.jchutchins.net. Hi, I'm Gigi Edgley. Uh, I'm here playing with Chris and uh, he's been teaching me and telling me all about this amazing land that you guys seem to play in a lot. Uh, and I'd like to tell you about this land called The Starter Wife, where I got to play a crazy American, which was very exciting. I wasn't an alien this time, so that was very cool. And it was Hollywood, very tongue-in-cheek, based on the Gold Coast in Australia, which was very exciting. Uh, Early on in the year, I worked on a project uh, called Alien vs. Alien with uh, a couple of of great guys called Jason London and Cody Bell. But in the meantime, I hope to bump into some of you guys at... Here we go. This is the, the list of the spiel of conventions con in Orlando, 16th to 18th, which is in February. I'll also be attending Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle from the 31st to the 1st of March. Possibly one in Adelaide, but yet to be confirmed. Throw that one in for the curveball. Uh, Pittsburgh Comic Con, Pittsburgh, and that's April the 27th to the 29th. And Adventure Con in Tennessee uh, from June the 1st to the third. So come and see me and hang out and be silly. For personal and convention appearances, if you want to get in contact with me, my angel who looks after me, who takes me around the world and back again, is Jean Arico, and she's with Peachtree Services, and it's www.peachtreeservices.net. The story so far. In the last chapter, the standoff at John Alpha's headquarters in Prophecy continued. Alpha's villainous acolyte, Special K, repeated his ultimatum. That Jack remained there at the coveted water tower, while Kilroy 2.0 and Father Thomas leave the ghost town. In exchange, Special K would give the others Alpha's new location. Despite Thomas's furious protests, Jack volunteered to stay. Thomas and Kilroy left the lair, and received the GPS coordinates to Alpha's position. Then Special K announced that Jack and all of Prophecy would soon be destroyed by explosives planted throughout the town. Unable to save their brother, the men departed. In the tower, Jack plotted his escape. As Special K taunted him via computer feed, Jack used a ladder to climb to the tower's ceiling hatch. As the final seconds ticked away, Jack leaped from the water tower into the canopy of a tree nearby. Miraculously, he survived the fall to the ground. As the town exploded around him, Jack found the clone sedan and drove back to Prophecy's airstrip. He had gleaned important clues from the villain's taunts and now had to rendezvous with the others. Chapter 24 
John and Mike gawked at the infrared footage of the Micropolis below. The former Dewline site was teeming with activity. Street lamps were winking to life, illuminating the muddy streets crisscrossing the terrain, casting shadows across dozens of construction trailers. A Titanic dump truck headed west, away from the camp. A pickup truck, matchbox-sized in comparison, cruised beside it. John followed the path of the trucks, his eyes traveling west, and then the columns of ghoulish blue runway lights flickered to life, showing the way to the two airstrips. One was about a mile west of the camp. The other was even further. Pilot Leland's gruff voice crackled over the comlink. You're calling the shots. Mike turned to John. We have to land, he said through his oxygen mask. We have to know what's happening here, why it's happening here. John nodded. Pilot, take us down, he said. Which strip? The one closest to camp, Mike answered. That's less distance for us to walk. I'll make one last pass to prep for landing. Never seen anything like this before. Neither have I, Mike said. John had, in construction equipment catalogs from his former profession. He nodded knowingly. This armada was the multi-million industrial stuff, the massive contraptions you'd find in quarries and mines. The Aurora jet banked to the left, soaring across Camden Bay. It looks like a Tonka convention down there, Mike said. What do you think they're doing? I used to do road work a few years back, John replied. Thankless fucking job. Some of the equipment down there, I recognize. Dozers, dumpers, loaders, planers. This stuff's way bigger than anything I've ever seen up close. A drilling team, Mike said. John nodded. Or the makings of one. Whatever it is, it's illegal as hell. Nobody's supposed to be up here except for the Inupiates. I wonder how long they've been here. Pilot Leland told them to hush. We're heading down now, he said. I snagged a still shot of the biggin heading this way. I zoomed in pretty tight. There's a logo painted on it. Thought it might be of interest. You're talking about the dump truck. Affirmative, Leland replied. Take a look. It'll give you two something to do while I land this bad bitch. The live video on the wall monitor was replaced by a clear infrared photograph. There it was, a top view of the dump truck, a vehicle literally the size of a house. The truck was lime green in the night vision photo. Tiny clods of mud were flying from its rear wheels, caught in freeze frame. Tiny my ass, John realized. Those clods are probably the size of bathtubs. Someone's in a hurry, he said. There's that logo Leland was talking about, Mike said, clutching at his chest harness as the Aurora began its furious descent. Check it out, it's printed on the dumper, the, the dump thing, shit, whatever you call the place where they keep the dirt. John eyed the picture. There was a number painted on the top side of the truck, legible only from above. It was the numeral 930E, stenciled in characters at least ten feet tall. That's it, John thought. A Komatsu 930E, one of the biggest ever built. They can run a couple of mil apiece, without the tires. John shook his head. Beneath the numerals was the logo the others had spotted. It was the kind of logo big corporate money pays for. A rendering of a fortress turret, complete with blocky parapet. Arching from the turret were two curved shapes. Overall, the logo was a highly stylized capital letter R. Can you say neighborhood gas station? Mike asked. That's a Rookman logo, John said. Rookman Oil. Mobile's got the Pegasus, Texaco's got the Star, and Shell, well, never mind, Mike said. Rookman Oil's got the castle. Zero hassle at the castle, John said absently. He squinted at the image of the Komatsu dumper. This doesn't make sense. 
What are Rookman trucks doing up here? The plane lurched forward, and then the nose of the craft began to rise, pressing them back into their seats. The engines beyond the cabin walls began to whine. The jet was slowing. The walls and floor trembled ominously. Mike began to speak. The vibrations did funny things to his voice, like he was wrapping his knuckles on his collarbone. Rookman Oil's in bed with John Alpha, he said. They're here to drill. We gotta check this out and then check in. Good old Orlando should know about this. The cabin suddenly bucked as the jet landed, its engines screaming now as they reversed their thrust. Pilot Leland finally spoke over the comlink. A little close for my taste, but we're here, the pilot said. Close? Mike asked. Let's see for yourself, Leland replied. The wall-mounted monitor winked from the photo of the dump truck to live infrared. The horizon was dominated by a vast curving expanse of dark green. A path in the foreground ran directly toward the void. A thin wall of packed snow separated them. This is from the cam near the nose cone, Leland explained. You're looking at Camden Bay. We stopped about 200 yards away. Most of it's frozen solid. Wow, John whispered, gazing at the screen. It's beautiful. (laughs) Sure it is. And the weather that created it's going to make my bird full of piss and vinegar. You're going to have to make this qu- Leland broke the connection. He came back a moment later. Huh. You expecting a welcoming party? Absolutely not, Mike said. He and John exchanged a glance. At least not that we know of. Well, that's what's heading this way, Leland said. The biggin and his little compadre. Reverse angle. The monitor image of Camden Bay switched to another video feed, this one from the Aurora's tail. On the horizon was the hulking Komatsu 930E. The tiny pickup puttered alongside. Both were driving in the center of the airstrip, heading toward the jet. Jesus, look at that thing, Mike said, marveling at the screen. How big are those tires? Ten feet? More like twelve, John replied, his voice low. The Komatsu's ten headlights jittered merrily as the truck cruised down the runway. The side-view mirror is almost as tall as a man, he said. Front grill's the size of a barn door. Is that a stairway on the front of it? You know, going up across the grill? John nodded, his eyes fixed on the truck. It was growing larger on the screen. And larger. "Uh Uh-huh, he said, hypnotized. It's the only way the dirt jockeys can get up to the cab. I don't like this, Leland said over the comm. Not a bit. What is it? John asked. They're not slowing down. Well, they're still pretty far away, Mike said. No, son, the pilot replied. You don't understand. They're not slowing down. They're speeding up. The Komatsu 930E roared down the airstrip, its speedometer finally topping out at 40 miles per hour. Its 16-cylinder engine was redlining, delivering all 2,700 horses to the task, belching diesel fumes and thunderous noise into the dark sky. At nearly 30 feet wide, 25 feet tall, and more than 50 feet long, the Komatsu could roll over the pickup, cruising alongside it as if it were a speed bump. But surprisingly, she was a beaut to drive. That's what Leo Mullins was smiling at as he gripped the Komatsu's chubby steering wheel. This baby was an automatic, can you believe it, a frickin' automatic, and despite its mountainous size, was effortless to control. Of course, this cab didn't hurt. A tilt and telescoping steering column, power windows, and a superb 5500 BTU heater that clobbered the outside elements. It even had a tape deck. 
Leo Mullins had been an expert in driving such vehicles. Before he was hired by Rookman Oil six months ago, he'd worked as an operator in the Minnesota Iron Range and Wyoming's prolific Black Thunder coal mine. He'd been piloting 930s since their debut, and was a veteran of driving ultra-sized dumpers long before that. But when you've spent damn near 20 years inside the cab of a dump truck, you don't grin like a hyena. You don't hum Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, which Leo was now doing. You don't slap the steering wheel and whoop and fleetingly wonder if your nose is bleeding again, or if your legs are about to cramp up on you, as they did just minutes ago, or if your right eye is undergoing a catastrophic shutdown this very second. And you certainly don't drive your 21,000-pound truck toward a $3 billion experimental airplane. No, you just don't behave that way. Of course, Leo Mullins behaved this way because he wasn't Leo Mullins anymore. He was Doug Devlin, back from the dead. Again. What do you mean it's not slowing down? Mike yelped into the comm. He looked at John, terrified. He was hyperventilating behind his oxygen mask. Habla inglés, Sivy? It's heading for us! Leland snapped. I think it's going to ram us. He paused. When his voice returned, it was low, minimal, efficient. Yes, get your shit and get out. John ripped the mask from his own face, pulled off his helmet, and chucked it to the floor. He unlatched the chest harness, zipped up his polar coat, and grabbed one of the backpacks from the storage compartment. Can't you just turn around? Mike wailed, his head nodding maniacally. Turn us around and fly us the hell out of here? I will turn us around, as soon as you split, Leland growled. But we can't scramble. That son of a bitch has eaten my runway. There's not enough room for takeoff anymore. Move! Move your asses! John glanced at the monitor. The Komatsu 930E was bearing down on them faster than before, and much closer than before. What? Two city blocks now? Maybe three? It was a colossal armadillo, a lumbering steel dinosaur, its ten headlights now flickering eyes. A moment of dawning horror and hopelessness swept over him, and then the survival instinct blasted across his brain. It ain't stopping, Mike, John said, stepping over to the clone. He grabbed Mike's rubber oxygen mask and yanked it from the helmet's metal snaps. He took Mike's helmet off with one clean tug and threw it into one of the empty seats behind them. Frantically, he pulled his insulated snow hat onto his head. We go. Can't you just go off the runway? Mike shrieked. Can't you just turn around and drive off the runway? This isn't a monster truck, barked Leland's voice from the cabin speakers. Snow's too high out there. Now shut up and get off my plane. John looked at the screen again. Closer now. Blow the hatch, Leland. We're leaving. Fucking A, came the reply. The explosive bolts propelled the ceiling hatch upward, slamming it onto the steaming roof of the Aurora. Mike's good hand tugged at his chest harness, trying to unlock it. John gave a quick assist, and then both were on their feet. They dashed past the cabin storage compartment to the ladder attached to the wall. John motioned for Mike to go first, then tugged his own snow hat over his head. He's going to slow us down with that bum arm, John thought. Why'd we even bring him? Shit, move, Mike, move. Hurry it up, he's closing in, Leland said. We're going, John called, watching Mike slowly eke his way up the ladder. What about you, pilot? What are you going to do? Show them my disapproval, Leland said. Run like motherfuckers when you hit the ground. I'm not going to hold back. We hear you, John cried as he started up the ladder. The frigid Alaskan air swirled down the back of his coat, stinging his face and neck. He climbed out to the top of the Aurora and slipped on the backpack in his hands. Mike was sliding down the wing of the jet on his butt, less than 20 feet away from one of the Aurora's whirring rectangular engines. 
He dropped off the wing, out of sight. The dump truck was less than a block away now, roaring at them, its ten-foot-tall grill a furious, gaping mouth. John leaped off the fuselage. Fireworks of pain lanced up one leg as he landed. John and Mike ran together to the edge of the runway, then into the shin-deep field of snow. They stopped, well away from the airstrip. In this empty expanse, they could run, but there was no place to hide. On the tarmac, the Aurora's engines snarled, blasting blue flame across the blacktop. The nose of the jet slowly turned to the right, away from Camden Bay, and then moved much faster now as the entire jet swung around to face the Komatsu. From his vantage point, John squinted at the dump truck. The cabin dome light was on. The man inside was grinning and shouting. Blood was pouring from the man's eyes, his nose, into his gray beard. Devlin. And then the thunderstorm came. John and Mike shrieked as the Aurora's twin Gatling guns announced Pilot Leland's disapproval. Bursts of bright red tracer fire erupted from both sides of the Aurora, each line a 20-millimeter aluminum-cased bullet. The spears of light screamed across the runway, the first few dozen zipping past the rushing truck, missing it, and then the rest hit home. Christ, look at that! Mike screamed. The front of the Komatsu exploded in a spectacular whirlwind of sparks and twisted metal. The long metal staircase cutting across the truck's grill evaporated in the barrage. Glowing pieces spun off, spattering the snowy sides of the runway. Its bumper was pounded inward at the center, twisting its steel ends into a flaming smile. The Komatsu 930E kept coming. The Aurora's gun spun again, spitting more rounds at the truck. The Komatsu's grill blew outward from some explosion within, sending it spinning like a frisbee. The blast knocked the clones off their feet. Gallons upon gallons of brown and green liquid sprayed from the Komatsu's warped maw. It continued forward, a force of nature. Another burst of tracer fire cleaved through the right side of the truck, missing the driver's cab, but arcing in a downward swoop that chewed away the side-view mirror and blew a half-dozen holes into the driver's front-side tire. The truck listed to the right, slowing down, and then corrected course. Another small explosion, this one from the jet. A black metal panel atop the Aurora flew into the night, and then an ejection seat roared skyward, Pilot Leland sitting on it. The thing rocketed into the starless sky, vanishing. And then, for only a second, if only in John's mind, there was absolute silence. The ten-and-a-half-ton Komatsu 930E slammed into the Aurora at 35 miles per hour. The sound defied description, experience, perhaps the sound of boxcars slamming against each other, or a city's worth of power transformers exploding on telephone poles, or of thunder, or waterfalls, or war. The ground trembled, cracking the tarmac. The front third of the Aurora crumpled like an accordion, flinging metal, wire, and fire across the front of the truck. The driver in the cab was killed instantly. The momentum of the truck was not sated. It pressed onward, shoving the jet backward. Both vehicles rolled toward the end of the runway, smashing through the wall of plowed snow that separated the pavement from the edge of Camden Bay. The thick crust of ice held as the Komatsu and Aurora, now fused together as a burning hulk of steel and titanium, slid across its surface. Then the ice shattered, and the void below swallowed both vehicles. John and Mike watched this unfold, transfixed in terror and wonder. The men didn't notice the high-beam headlights until they were shining directly in their faces. 
It was the pickup truck that had been cruising beside the Komatsu. It was now parked on the airstrip, turned to face the clones. John twisted his head over his shoulder, looking for a place to hide. There was only a mile of open, snowy terrain, and then the edge of the Rookman oil camp a mile away. Silhouetted forms stepped out in front of the headlights. They were carrying pistols, John could see. He suddenly wished his own pistol was in his hands instead of buried somewhere in his backpack. If he went for the gun, would they, whoever they were, shoot him? John thought they would. John and Mike Smith, called a man's voice. Come here. Walk slowly. Do it now. John turned to his brother. What do we do? They've got guns, Mike said, shielding the glare with his good hand. You can't argue with a bullet and you sure as hell can't outrun one. Believe me. He shook his head. We do what they say. That's close enough, one of the men said as they neared the battered white pickup. John and Mike were still in the snowfield, yet close enough to smell the exhaust fumes sputtering from the truck. They were also close enough to see their captors' faces. One of the men was in his mid-thirties, with a spotty light brown beard and eyes to match. The other was a black man, probably in his fifties, his own beard flecked with gray. Both had the shakes, their heads nodding to a beat only they could hear. Blood oozed from the black man's ears, leaving sticky trails down the sides of his neck. The white man's left eye had gone milky white. Blood and pus dribbled from his left nostril, crusting his scruffy mustache. Mr. Devlin, I presume? Mike said to them. Correct, the men said. The white man smiled, showcasing a mouthful of yellow teeth. Don't worry, we just want to ask you a question. Just one question. Inexplicably, the man's chest and head exploded before them, the zombie grin still on his face as he fell. The sound came a half second later, the faraway pop-pop-pop of a gun. The hell? John thought, jumping backward. Distracted, the black devlin whirled around, looking across the horizon for the shooter. A voice screamed from above. Run! John looked up. It was Leland, floating across the sky in a parachute harness. In his hand was a service pistol. The remaining Devlin raised his gun and fired. John and Mike dashed back into the field as Leland shot back. Bullets vipped across the snow, just missing the assassin. Devlin fired into the sky again, this time unloading what was left of the clip. His aim was true. A single shriek came from above, and then silence. Stop! Devlin screamed. The clones continued to run until the ground around them began to explode. They turned around. Devlin was crouching beside the body of his counterpart, the dead man's gun now in his hands. Move and you're both dead, the killer said. That's ironclad. Don't fuck with me. As Devlin trudged through the snow, John and Mike spotted the sagging body of Audie Leland soar over them back toward the runway. The man crashed into the pavement, leg bones snapping like celery. His parachute fluttered down, covering the body. Devlin fished a long metal flashlight from his coat pocket and pointed it at the clones. He was ten feet away now, still aiming the gun at them. God damn it, the man said, panting. His voice was raspy, the voice of a man who screamed far too much. No more conversation. We go straight for the money shot. I ask you a question, you answer it. Understand? John and Mike said nothing. The frigid wind howled around them. Fine, Devlin said. He lowered the pistol. Which one of you has the ponytail? The clones blinked, looked at each other. Devlin took a step forward. Which one of you is the seventh, the musician, the one with the ponytail? You must be joking, Mike said. 
It's all I need to know, honestly. You're both wearing hats, so I can't tell the difference. So, which one of you's the hippie? Go to hell, John spat. Murderer. Yeah, many times over, Devlin agreed, his voice growing bored. Captured, convicted, executed, and here I am all over again. He raised his pistol at John. I'd like you to take off your snow hat now, he said, and then grinned. Please. John stiffened. No way. Devlin pulled back the pistol hammer with his thumb. I'm not going to tell you again. I'll shoot you both. Show me. Show me so I can leave. Show me so I can leave you alone. Don't do it, John, Mike said. It's a trick. The gun swung to Mike now. Devlin was chuckling. That must mean you're number three, the killer said. John's the long hair. You're the profiler. I remember you, Doc. I remember the look on your face when I spilled my guts. Heard you put me in your book. Never got around to reading it, but one of my brethren did. Said you were pretty hard on me. You earned that needle, Devlin, Mike replied, his eyes wide with fear. You earned that trip to hell. Doug Devlin nodded, then pulled the trigger. A quarter-sized hole appeared in the center of Mike's forehead. His blue eyes fluttered for a moment, his lips twitching madly, and then he fell backward into the snow. John looked down at Mike, unbelieving, refusing to believe, refusing to believe. He screamed and charged the assassin. Devlin easily sidestepped him and swung his metal flashlight like a club. It cracked against the side of John's head, sending him skittering face first into the snow. Devlin wrapped his fingers tightly around the flashlight and punched John in the face. It was like being hit with a sock full of quarters. John's left eyebrow split open. Another punch. Devlin kicked him twice in the stomach, knocking the wind out of his prey's lungs. John slumped into the snow, gasping, his body curling into itself. He could see events unfolding, but could do nothing. Devlin was trotting over to Mike's body now, lifting it up. His brains are falling out of the back of his head. Christ, his brains. Oh, God, no, Mike, no. And hefting it over his shoulder. Devlin was now stepping back toward John, stepping in front of him, Devlin's ice-covered boot smashing into his cheek. And now, Devlin's scratchy voice from far away, like a fading radio station. Enjoy the weather, freak. As the world was going gray, going akimbo, John heard the hollow thunks of three bodies being tossed into the pickup's cab, one after another. And then the rumble of the engine as the truck drove away, back toward the Rookman oil camp. And then, for a little while, there was nothing. It was his own chattering teeth that woke him. The icy wind nipped and ripped at the wounds on his face. He was alone in the darkness. The world was a haze. John had been in enough fistfights to know the first order of business. Grocery list the wounds. His shivering was nearly convulsive and his vision was a blur. That would pass, he hoped. He stood up slowly, waiting for the dizziness to ebb. He touched the side of his face, wincing at the wicked bruise forming just beneath his eye. He reached up to his eyebrow, then looked at his gloved fingers. The cut wasn't bleeding anymore. Good thing. His hands were almost numb. Not so good. He stuffed them inside his coat pockets. How long was I out? He thought. No way to tell. Don't wear a watch. Another stupid, stupid thing I've been meaning to. Mike. My God. My God, he shot Mike. John whirled around. Less than ten feet away was the blood-stained snow angel where Mike had fallen. It had all happened. The plane was gone. The pilot was dead. Mike was dead. A bullet through his brain. 
Mike is dead. He fell to his knees and screamed, pounding his fists into the snow. He screamed. Eventually, he gazed across the horizon, his mind searching for answers. The glowing carnival that was the Rookman oil camp lay to the east. It had been here for some time, he knew. The infrared footage they'd seen revealed organization, not a squatter's shantytown. So what was in there beside a cadre of devlins? Mining equipment, he knew. Drilling equipment. They want to drill in the 1002. But why? It's impossible. Never been authorized by Congress. They want... They want to be the first. Rookman Oil wants to be the first to drill. The first to drill after... After what? The world was spinning, Mike's face still frozen in his mind. The tears came. He bit his lip, wiping them away. After the attack on the Saudis. That equipment is certain to roll into the 1002 now. Congress's authorization to drill is the mushroom clouds on the nightly news. The Saudis and the Russians have been taken out of the oil game. Someone has to pull up the slack. Someone knew this was going to happen which confirmed that Rookman Oil was connected to Alpha, which also explained the presence of the Devlins. But why were we sent here? He wondered. If the camp is supposed to be secret, why? What was accomplished other than... And then the pieces fell into place. No. Oh, no, John whispered. Inspired, he wrenched the backpack off his shoulders. Help! I got a call for help! The satellite phone was in the backpack, along with the lapsat. Why hadn't he thought of that sooner? His wooden fingers bumbled over the zipper. Just get the phone. Make the call. Tell Hill what you know and where you are. Get the others to pick you up. John peeled open the backpack. Inside was a pistol, a sleeping bag, some MREs, a couple of flares. His cigarettes and lighter lay at the bottom. But no phone. No computer. John's eyes widened. He felt nauseous, dizzy all over again. The phone and PC had been in the other backpack. The backpack that Mike had failed to grab from the Aurora's storage compartment. The backpack that was now in Camden Bay. John looked up into the black sky. The sub-zero wind swirled around him, chilling him to the marrow. He was alone. All alone. You've been listening to Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit, a podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Thanks for listening. Please visit www.jchutchins.net for more information about this novel and about the author. Themed music generously provided by Cell Dweller. Please visit the band's website at celldweller.com and at myspace.com slash celldweller. Graphic elements for website art and album art for this podcast generously created by Magic Torch. Please visit the company's website at magictorch.com. This recording and its contents are copyright 2006 J.C. Hutchins.